I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. On today's episode, Amanda Lannert, CEO of JellyVision, discusses how she learns from history when envisioning the future, leading through crisis, growing a startup versus scaling a large company, and how organizational culture is ultimately about behaviors. Stay tuned to hear Amanda weigh in on the cadence of promotions and title changes and how to leverage workforce disruption for a happier life. Hi, Amanda. Good to see you. Very nice to be here. Good to see you, Margaret. I feel like I've seen you so much lately. It's been really nice. Yeah, it's amazing, the power of Zoom. Uh, You actually seem to see people more uh, than when we're actually all in downtown Chicago running around. You and I were downtown Chicago running around the week before everything shut down. That was the last time I saw you in person. That was our big event. Everyone was there. And then we all went dark. I straight up remember it was it was a Thursday before it is seven days, six days before Jellyvision permanently shut down. I don't mean permanently, but it has been almost a year. And I remember being on stage. I remember the processional where we stopped by and everybody did a pump of hand sanitizer. Uh-huh. And I remember that we spoke about it with concern, but no realization that no one would be in a room with 500 people again for at least a year. Yeah. Uh, and that is six days before Chicago shut down. Um, just, yeah. just an absolute lack of, of, of understanding of the gravity of it, you know, cause the yeah. avian bird flu and the swine flu, we've had all kinds of flus that have not really hit home. And this one, uh, I made fun of six days before we shut down our offices. Oh, sure. we all were. I remember that. I remember in the speaker reception and some people were full on hugging, laughing, making jokes of it. Others, others were holding back saying, no, I'm taking this seriously. I mean, little did we know what yes. we had in store. <laughs> well, and I hear you went out to eat this weekend. So exciting. I did. And it, it's like now I have to live in my basement for two weeks to make sure I don't have COVID. But it was it felt very nice to do normal things again really felt really, really nice to sit down and, and, and sort of support the economy. And I I don't know if I'm going to get COVID, but I do know that it's like the feeling of normalcy is so alien to me right now. Uh, And I think that there are really two phases of recovery. One is us being safe. And the second is us feeling safe. And I don't know how quickly those two are going to coincide or if there's going to be sort of a delay between when it is deemed safe and when it feels safe, knowing some of us, uh, I'm borderline agoraphobic. I was the biggest extrovert in the world, always out and about. And now I just like live in my basement. Am I going to bounce right back or we'll see? We'll see. I don't know. I know. Will we be permanently changed? It's so interesting. I know you and I talked about this a while ago that we both discovered our secret inner introverts that we didn't know were there. Like we, you know, have gone through life acting like these extroverts and believing we are. And, you know, I think we still are, but that there was this inner introvert that was like, oh, thank you. This is actually really nice. It was so interesting. There's also um, the part of me that really enjoys the fact that I'm wearing sweatpants and Ugg slippers. And, mm-hmm. I just, and I don't mean like leggings. Leggings for me are now dress up. I, <laughs> I put on my leggings when it's time to be fancy. And it is straight up full blown like joggers slash sweatpants uh, seven days a week otherwise, uh, which is really nice. I mean, shoes, don't wear them. Don't eat them. Don't eat them. Don't eat them. Who needs them? <laughs> So we have so much that we want to talk about. I think it would be great to just start with the story of how you became CEO of Jellyvision, 
because it's a great story. I don't know that everyone knows it. And so if you can just share with us what that was like. I am a joiner. Uh, I joined Jelly Vision. I did not found it. Therefore, I was not CEO on day one. Uh, my original title was marketer and no small part because I wanted a director of marketing title. Jelly Vision didn't feel ready to give me that, even though I was VP track at my prior gig at Leo Burnett. I didn't want to go down to marketing manager. So we just settled on marketer. Uh, very shortly thereafter, I became president of the company, which was to me a giant win. And I was very excited about it. And then a few years later, on my birthday, Harry Gottlieb, the founder and CEO of Jellyvision, said, "Let's go out to lunch. Let's go to let's go go to lunch for your birthday." And I thought, "All right, there's a lot of celebrations for my birthday, but if you want to do a special lunch, let's do it." It's a beautiful September day. We go to the Art Institute, which was a pretty big cab ride away from our our offices. And instead of just going to Beeline for the restaurant, he says, let's sit on a bench. So we're sitting on a bench outside the Art Institute. And I am, I'll be honest, as lovely as it was, I thought it was kind of weird. Then Harry takes out his messenger bag, opens it up and pulls out a gift bag, which was super weird because of all the things, you know, we are, he's not a gifty guy. He's an incredibly generous guy, but he's not a gifty guy. And uh, while I'm a gifty person, he's not. So I was like, all right, he got a gift. It's so weird. And I, I take the bag. I thank him profusely. And as I'm holding the bag, I realize this guy has wrapped a brick. He's giving me a brick. And I get it. It's a metaphor. It's going to be sort of like an example of what we're building together. But in my head, I'm thinking this brick is going to be on my desk for the rest of my days because you can't throw away a metaphor. <laughs> Uh, and and I, I, oh, I'm going to have this brick for all of my days and I'm trying to clutter <laughs> and just, okay, I, I now own a brick. And he says, please open it. And I was like, oh gosh, the brick probably has a punny plaque on it, something adorable and wonderful because of what we're building together. So I go to unwrap the brick and I unwrap it and it's not a brick. It's a box of business cards that says CEO. And in this moment of the, the ultimate promotion for someone who is a joiner, the ultimate promotion for a company that I had bled for and worked for and cared for and, and sweat for, this sort of unbelievable moment of transition, my initial reaction was, what? No, no, what are you doing? No, like really like emotional, effusive, immature, unpolished uh, reaction where Harry just quietly nodded and was like, uh-huh. I said, no, wait, what are you doing, you maniac? Uh, and sort of had this moment of like total disbelief, no mental preparation, uh, no transition, no gracious words that I'm ready for the challenge, you know, just kind of this like sort of vomit of, of surprise, which, you know, is part of the point, you know, Harry, surprise, Easter eggs, really a huge part of, of Jellyvision's culture. But I became CEO by surprise. And while it was really fun in hindsight, I think that, you know, those kinds of transitions of power can be better prepared, you know, better planned, better discussed, better rolled out. Uh, but I really uh, got, uh, became CEO because as Harry said, you were doing the job, so I might as well give you the title. And uh, it took maybe four months before I really started to think through what does that mean and what do I do and how do I behave differently? Uh, but there are differences, both internal in terms of expectations, but external market expectations uh, between president and CEO. But I was sort of an accidental or unexpected CEO. And that is the beginning of my run of CEO at Jelly Vision. That sounds like a great movie, The Accidental CEO. 
Yeah. And so you didn't have your your Oscar speech planned. The, I didn't. No, I was I'm not surprised. But actually, I happen to have the speech right here. So let me read it. <laughs> I didn't expect it, but here's my four pages of notes. Know. You know, I really didn't expect it, and therefore I was a blithering idiot. So that was my moment. That's great, though. You just dive in because who knows if you would have prepared and expected, you know, how you might have approached that differently. So what was the most surprising part for you about the CEO role? Was there something that you were like, oh my gosh, I did not know this was part of it or in a good way or bad way? Yeah. I I am someone who has always said that titles up until that point said titles don't matter. I was not someone who aspired to be CEO. I didn't plan to be CEO. I just kind of want to do what I want to do. I want you to be happy about it, but I, you know, anything seems interesting and important if you look at it long enough. I have always had you know strong conviction in ideas. I like to try new things. I like to get stuff done. Sort of those those characteristics didn't require a CEO title. The biggest surprise to me was that the invitations I got changed, and and access to certain rooms changed, and and the microphones I had an opportunity to grab hold of were different. So I do think that that from a public access perspective, a public stage perspective, and a a kind of cool room perspective, there is a difference between president and CEO or marketer and CEO. Uh, So it's it's almost the world's perspective. And things like getting press can help your business. Mm -hmm. Customers are more likely to say yes if you're bringing in the CEO. So it's almost more external than internal. uh, And I will just say uh, titles do matter. That's my my observation now is that titles absolutely matter. So I'm curious how you approach this with your own team now, given your experience and understanding titles matter. Do you give them the promotion and then have them earn it? Or do they have to do the job first and then they get the promotion? So, it, you know, we've done it. We've done it both ways. Um, and and to be perfectly honest, one of the, the biggest challenges at Jelly Vision is that the size and scale has changed a lot. And a VP at a 100-person company or a 50-person company is different than expectations at a 300-person company. Mm-hmm. And very early on when we were small and, to be honest, broke, titles were currency that we could give to create opportunity and growth for people in lieu of huge, you know, salaries. Now we're a little bit more uh, thinking about market benchmarks because part of it is we want to pay people. Salaries become much more sort of normative. We need to understand where we're paying. And if you're a VP at Jellyvision now, you're going to benchmark yourself against VPs and the expectations need to align. So uh, early on, we were very loose. Now we're trying to be more predictable, more market uh, standard, more market facing. Uh, so I think you can't say that there's an absolute around titles. I think it's incredibly stage dependent. It's an unbelievably valuable tool that can become problematic the bigger you are and the more VPs you have, where you need to have sort of consistency and expectations and consistency of impact, which is just less the case when you're a ragtag startup team just trying to make it through the week. Mm-hmm. So, so much of what we're reading now is about leadership in times of crisis or disruption or, you know, call it whatever you want. And you've really honed those skills throughout your career. You've been in the trenches and been through a lot. So if you could share what has been one or two of the toughest decisions that you had to make, and is that serving you now? You know, is a crisis, a crisis, a crisis, and you were made for this moment or is every crisis different and this, you've had to do brand new things this time around. So every crisis is different, but I think a playbook um, is 
there are truths that can be executed differently, but sort of there are North Star pillars to go back to. And so Jelly Vision's 2020 wasn't just terrible. It was particularly terrible and that we began the year with, with a significant layoff. We were just about on our feet when the pandemic hit. We were just about on our feet when the Black Lives Matter movement really sort of showed us that the inaction is complicity and made us really rethink how we're proceeding things that began. Then we did a reorg from a C-suite perspective. And it just like was kind of one thing after another of, of, of challenge. And so as someone who I love companies that are up and to the right. I don't begrudge them for making it look easy, but that is not Jelly Vision's trajectory, right? It's it's up and down and left and right, all you know, ultimately and growing. So, having a, a humdinger of a year, my my sort of perspective is: you've got to give bad news straight, but you also must have a plan to get us out of it. Those are the two components of dealing with bad news or a crisis got to give it to people straight. Do not sugarcoat it. Do not withhold key information. But you also have the obligation of once setting the stage, you also have to say, and here is the plan of action. Here is what we're going to do. So I kind of break down when the pandemic hit, here's what's going on. Here's what we've learned. Here's what we're going to do about it. Here's why we think we're going to be okay. Not cheerleading, but just saying action plan. And here we can uh, move forward because uncertainty I've learned can feel worse for employees than bad news. And that's why the mm -hmm. pandemic was so tricky. There was such a lack of psychological safety, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs was not being met for the majority of people about their physical safety, their financial safety, their, their personal freedoms and liberties. Like there was a lot um, turned upside down and I admitted it, I don't know what's gonna happen. Let's control what we can control. So we did a couple of things at Jelly Vision. Um, we turned to history. And I actually did a, an all-company presentation about lessons learned from the Great Depression. Who thrived from the Great Depression and what did they do? And we talked about innovating throughout, being willing to change, investing in marketing, like sort of the pillars of, you know, P&G was made by the Great Depression. Why? I showed historical pandemic analyses. So it's, I'm trying to just de-risk. This isn't what I think. This is what history is telling us. Here's what a K recovery looks like. Here's what a V recovery looks like. Here's a W. Here are various models that we can apply. And here's how the, the world has recovered from pandemics. Because guess what? This isn't the first time. And then our playbook was total transparency on financials. Not just bookings and expenses, but our cash position, our burn, really like eight pages of financials that I talked about um, on a monthly basis. It sort of ended up in this uh, section of an all hands meeting that we call State of the World, where instead of just talking about Jelly Vision, we're trying to define what are our customers thinking? What are our partners thinking? What are the employees that we serve thinking? What are the lessons learned from going external that we can bring back? And it was just trying to say, don't trust me, you know, my word. Here, here's how it's showing the math of your decisions, uh, showing the math of my decisions, showing the context from history, looking for pattern recognition, and then saying, and here's our plan. Here's why we think it will work. You make your decisions about whether or not you want to be on board, but you know we've we've laid it all out. But it really was an absolutely crazy process where I was at a dinner party with CEOs on Monday, joking about the pandemic, and then we shut down the company two days later. Uh, there was yeah. a lot of I didn't see it coming, and I did have to admit more often than I would like, I don't know what's next. I don't know what's going to happen to the recovery. So here's what I do know: history, patterns, fellow CEOs. 
thought leaders, advisors, et cetera. And then here's our plan uh, just over and over and over and over again, month after month, you know, every two weeks, just constant communication. And that's what people wanted. And I think that's where some leaders really shined, you know, with that transparency and a sense of here is the plan, but it may shift because the world is changing and I can't predict how it's going to evolve. Um, and balancing that, like you said, that radical transparency with also some sense of optimism, right? You, you want them to feel that this is a good place to be, but also being radically transparent. I yeah, think I you're just so good at that. The important thing is you can't promise everything's going to be okay, right? but you have an obligation as a leader to have a plan. It can't just be we're going to cross our fingers, close our eyes, and hope all is well. Right. Uh, we do a company meeting feedback every single time there's a meeting at Jelly Vision. We do anonymous survey feedback. We just pulse it and always find out. And the meeting that I thought would be the worst of my career, the one when we were really into the pandemic, we hadn't shut down. It was not going to be a two-week stint. We're like, we're now in this. This is going to be a while, and we don't know how long it's going to be where I went through that formula of here's what happened, here's what we've learned, here's what we're doing about it, here's why we think it's going to be okay, uh, was the highest rated company meeting I've ever given. Yeah, I'm not surprised. So for people who know you, you are really emblematic of how to build a strong corporate culture. I think that's part of what you're known for. And so let's talk a little bit about how you did that when you were in the startup and early growth phase versus how you approach it now as you've scaled into a much larger organization. So as a joiner, I would always give advice to founders that that who you are and what you do really matters. Put your best forward first. Excuse me, put your best foot forward because it really matters. I think what's best about Jellyvision is in fact what's best about our founder many many years later. But let's let's break down. So culture, not slogans that you put on a wall not an emblem that goes on a plaque. It's really about behavior. When do you meet? When do you not meet? How do you make decisions? Who gets to weigh in? What do you celebrate? What do you not tolerate? It's, it's, to me, it's, it's, it's more helpful to think about culture as behaviors. And the most important thing a leader can do is lead by example. What you do is so much more important than what you say, especially in the early days. Mm-hmm. And now, and now I kind of look at culture at Jelly Vision as as being of the people by the people. I think it, at scale, it becomes somewhat of a myth, perhaps perpetuated by CEOs, that, that culture comes from the top down. I'll be honest, there is culture being evolved at Jelly Vision uh, by people I have yet to meet. So mm-hmm. I think it's very important to separate expectations. Values don't change. The rituals and the way you express them can and should. So that's that's sort of like the balance I would say is like separate, understand that culture is really about behaviors and underlying behaviors are values that shouldn't change, but the rituals around them should. And I can give just a quick example of like a ritual that is important at Jelly Vision, and that's welcoming new people. Back in the day uh, when when I joined, you know, there was an orange juice toast because Harry, our founder, didn't drink and we would just get together. It would be a morning meeting. Everyone would have a little orange juice and a toast. And as the company started to grow, we stopped doing orange juice, you know, for 50, 60, 70 people. We would do fun facts about the person to welcome them, a little bio, but only, you know, fun facts. And then it evolved to being, you know, slides rotating. And then there was a mixer. And then somebody came up with a great idea because we, we were hiring, you know, 40 people over the course of two weeks at one point. And, and it's just you can't 
honor people individually at that kind of scale. So someone came up with the idea of what we call the clap out, which is at the end of your first day as a new hire, where you're exhausted and tired and anxious and you need to pee and you're probably hungry and you want to leave so your manager can do real work. On your way out the door, after you say your goodbye, someone says, first day, new hire clap out, and you get a standing ovation all the way out the office. And that is translated even on Zoom where people will, will hit you with a ton of slack, you know, emojis, giffies, all that stuff, jiffies, however you want to say it, um, tons of just like applause, welcome, 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 welcome. And it happens again on the end of your first week. And the idea was to say, we understand you went from the height of your power of your last job to the bottom of your power of your new job at Jelly Vision. Thank you for the trust you put in the company. We're so glad to have you here. And it went from a very intimate toast of everyone looking at you to this, this sort of weird getting spam with like welcome from people you don't even know on Slack. But the intent, the value is the same. People are our lifeblood. They have, are, and always will be what makes Jelly Vision great. We are not going to have bots at Jelly Vision that, that supersede humanity. So we acknowledge it. And, and, and the ritual expression of how much we value new people who put their careers into Jelly Vision's hands has completely evolved based on scale. But the, the, the gratitude and the recognition of individual con uh, contribution is very much immutable. And so that approach is what is serving you well and serves any organization well during this pandemic, right? So it's like, if we think about our tactics as who we are, like I think about restaurants, right? Serving people food at a table inside a building with four walls is not your purpose. Your purpose is to bring, you know, joy through food and experience and stuff. And those who have been able to do that in creative ways are, are doing okay through this, right? I mean, maybe not as well as, you know, they would have otherwise, but they're not the ones that are next, necessarily shuttering their doors. And so what you're speaking to is like really honing into what are the values, what is the purpose, and that could be expressed in all sorts of ways, right? And so even through the pandemic that you're doing it through Zoom and Slack and, you know, all of these things, you can still have your, your clap out even though you're not all stand, literally standing, you know, while they're walking out the door. It's desk. pretty great when you are all standing together. It's one of the few rituals I miss. If you, if you haven't had, you know, 40 to a hundred people spontaneously give you a standing ovation, you should, cause it really, <laughs> it really does lift the yeah. spirits a little bit. Yeah. Just saying. Are they prepared for it? Has it become kind of known that this is happening? Or it's, it's, No, I've talked about separate. it publicly now, but still when it comes, it is a surprise. There are a lot yeah. of deer in the headlights uh, where they don't That's know, so am great. I supposed to go? What's going on? And we're like, please keep keep walking. <laughs> you won't That's stop. So you, gotta, you gotta keep walking. Uh, but it, it, even if you know it's coming, it's still, it's still, yeah. it's, a, it's a surprise. It's a nice little Easter egg at Jelly Vision. That's really nice. I know those first days are brutal, right? You come in with all this enthusiasm and then you're like really in trainings all day and like you don't know anyone and you're like, wait, is this, is this what I got so excited about? Um, that's really wonderful. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Sure Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Shure microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. So I think we should talk about Chicago 
because we need to. It's the Executives Club of Chicago. You know, you've been at the heart of Chicago's tech scene for a while now. You have such a great and evolving perspective of all of this. So let's just get into it. We'll see where this goes. So first, I would say just in many ways, Chicago is a business partner to Jellyvision, right? I mean, that they are the city where your headquarters are located. So I'm curious, how would you describe them as a person? Who is this business partner that we have in Chicago right now? I would describe Chicago as a business partner as nice, solid, loyal, collaborative, and humble. Maybe humble at the expense of shooting their own shot, but it has a small town feel. Mm -hmm. Yes, there are systemic problems around budget, safety, schools, infrastructure, but it's it's all over California and New York too right now. So I'm gonna right. I'm gonna put those aside. I just am. Right. I'm gonna say that it definitely has a nicer small town feel. Uh, where you, you know, it's a small community. You can call anybody at any time. They'll stop what they're doing and be helpful. And I do not believe that's true of other large city uh, communities. Yeah, it is true. Even friends of mine who have moved from New York to here are just shocked by that. They said, people take your call. They'll meet with you. Like, yeah, we do. (laughs) Just for example, I was sitting at a table at the Momentum Awards the night Chris Gladwin's uh, announced the sale of his company to IBM for $1.3 billion. He was literally sitting next to me. And I turned and I said, would you be open to telling me this story at some point? And he said, absolutely, for sure, to set up a time. And it was one of those things like, does he mean it? I'm going to try to set up a time, but it's like it was at a brush off because he's literally a captive mm-hmm. audience. And sure enough, he got on a divvy, biked out to lunch, sat, spent an hour and a half telling me the story, giving me the lessons learned. And that's very Chicago, this like billion dollar exit guy divvied over to to share his story with another CEO and the hopes that she too might be able to repeat the success. Very, yeah. very much a town where anyone's win is everyone's win. So now what's the downside? What would you like to see us start doing a little differently? So I think the, the narrative of pitching Chicago as a bargain, great cost of living, you know, affordable talent, I think it's uh, outdated because I think borderless is coming. Uh, mm-hmm. Coastal companies are coming in and raising salaries. Uh, people, just sort of like the, the, the notion of affordable town versus not affordable town, I think is going to change really, really quickly. I also think uh, talking about our summers being great is silly <laughs> when Miami has summer every day. So I don't like these defensive or outdated pitches. I don't even like the narrative where we're constantly talking about Chicago. I think if you really study how do great ecosystems, how did they become great? You need big exits that create a lot of bulletproof millionaires who are audacious and funded and go out and do it again. The real ecosystems are built by private sector with tight collaboration with talent pools, meaning schools or something to that effect. So if I were to give Chicago Tech Council it's stop talking about Chicago and instead specifically talk about our companies. Talk about ShipBob and Forkites. Talk about Equilibria. Talk about Reapley, Forager, Trala, True Public, Five to Nine. Talk about our companies more and more and more. Don't just help them, hype them. Mm-hmm. Create FOMO because the money will follow and then the bigger exits will follow and that success will beget success. Um, so I would love, I would love a little bit more uh, of an appetite for risk. I would love a little bit more swag. You can be helpful 
and still incredibly optimistic and ambitious. And I would love to see the investment community, particularly the angels, step up and encourage big thinking versus practical thinking. Mm -hmm. Revenue shouldn't be the first question out of an angel investor's mouth. It should be size of market, quality of the team, technology being built. And that way we will have more really transformational businesses, economy creating businesses instead of just nice businesses. Mm -hmm. Uh, So less talk about Chicago, more talk about our companies, hype them to create FOMO, write real checks and uh, increase appetite for risk uh, so that we can have truly transformational companies here. And I think there, there are plenty in the making. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's you know early stages, but there's a lot of reason to be optimistic that we can have some businesses that create a lot of jobs, make a lot of money, and solve real problems through technology, which is I think what everybody's hoping for in the first place. Yeah, I think you know historically when tech companies are trying to scale, the biggest challenge was finding that talent for the leadership executive team that knew how to scale. So they had to recruit that kind of talent from the coasts, people who have you know been through that rodeo before and knew how to do it. And that was a lot of the pitch, right? People who had ties to Chicago, whose family had ties, like, don't you want to come back and you can help build this great company here? What are you doing with your own leadership team now that, you know, Pandora's box has opened? We're hearing a lot of tech companies say this might be the greatest thing that happened to them in terms of their ability to scale and grow because they can have an executive team that is the best of the best from anywhere and don't have to necessarily convince them to move to Chicago. Is this a viable long-term strategy though? Like how is this going to pan out three, five, 10 years down the road when we do have this disparate executive team? Is that really a great strategy? So I, the way I look at it is we went remote really, really quickly. I think coming back is going to be a three-year evolution where we just don't know what what after is going to look like as people sort of have signed leases and, and shaking things up. Jelly Vision's approach is flexible first. of the C-suite of JellyVision is permanently remote. We are hiring people who are permanently remote, and we're going to think more about having space in Chicago for on-sites rather than off-sites. We we hired a lot of extroverts. We had a very bustling, friendly, noisy, packed office environment. And our sort of employer promise to those people does not allow us to go remote only. So we're going to continue to invest in in physical office space, particularly in Chicago, where we're headquartered. But we no longer expect that most people are going to be in the office five days a week. I think we've learned a lot about ourselves during this pandemic, and we miss a lot of things. I'm not sure that people miss commuting five days a week. Mm-hmm. I am not sure that what we we, we are longing for is, is sitting in meetings and being in Jelly Vision's office 40, 40 hours a week. Right. So we are going to have an office. We are going to make it great for hoteling and drive-bys and collaboration spaces and a change of scenery. And if you want a desk at Jelly Vision, it will be there for you. But we don't have the expectation going forward that we're going to have capacity in the office on Thursdays or Fridays. We believe that you know thirty percent of our population will be uh, you know remote. And I, I think that the beginning of future work has just begun. Like Zoom is not the answer. It's phase one. And what we have to do is stop taking the office environment and moving it into Zoom and really say, can we challenge how we work in general? 
the 40-hour work week is from manufacturing where people stood on a line and 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 pressed widgets. Right. And we kind of brought that into high thought work. And it's like, can we change like day parts? Can we change what is meeting? Can we change what collaboration looks like? I'm I'm really saying, give me th- three years to pilot and try new things around like what is actually productivity and how is it measured uh, so that people can really work more where they want and how they want and when they want. My, my hope is we find silver lining from the pandemic and greatly challenge this like five day a week in the office yeah. as, as, as anything that is ultimately successful. I think when we're finally free, uh, people are gonna travel and they're gonna hug their friends and families and they are not gonna miss the office. I think the office is gonna drop a little bit in priorities once people aren't stuck in their homes and companies that don't innovate and really create time for people to do things that aren't work I think are going to get left behind in the, in the tech field. I think I think you know millennial yeah. and Gen Z workers are not raring to commute. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there is some concern. I've been talking to some younger people, and they are concerned that some competition is going to creep in, though that it's going to eventually evolve back to, oh yeah, but you know Joe's putting the FaceTime in, and you know that there's going to start to be these unintended consequences or unintended intentional penalties for not going back to how things were, right? Well, if you're the one that's on the road and you're the one in the office, like you're going to be the one that ends up getting these promotions. And so how do we get much more intentional about this? Because I agree with you. This is a huge opportunity. We can see this as the gift that it is and start getting really imaginative and creative and transformative in this moment because we have a time to blank slate this whole thing. We don't have to go back. Um, And I'm wondering like what you're seeing in terms of what are the kinds of companies and people that you could say, yep, they're just going to go right back to where it is. And what are those things where people are going to really take this as an opportunity to do something different? Bankers are dying. I heard Solomon give a talk where he was desperate. Uh, David Solomon, Goldman Sachs cannot wait to get his bankers back into the office because they're not billing 80 hours a week anymore. They're doing things like showering after a 10 a.m. meeting and going for walks over lunch. And he just like he's just losing productivity. Mm-hmm. And that and that is a you know time and materials billable hours uh, situation potentially, or it's just where they get the productivity of two workers out of one. And and here's the thing, I don't think bankers are. <laughs> wanting to go back to that. So I think the idea of saying, what's the problem with saying FaceTime? It doesn't actually correlate to anything other than activity. It's not productivity. And I bet we're going to have sort of the next wave of future work companies are going to help us actually understand what is productivity, what moves the business forward, and it's Mm -hmm. not FaceTime. That that to me is the most sort of valuable thing is we have been measuring hours and that is a legacy, a drag concept from when in fact it does matter. It was the, it was the maximum number of hours you could stand and press things on an assembly line, more hours than that, errors crept in, fatigue set in and people could get hurt. Fewer hours than that, and you weren't maximizing, you know, oh, too many shift changes and it was inefficient in terms of the assembly line totally irrelevant concept that is going to get challenged. And you have to say, well, what is what is in fact productivity? It's really hard. It's easy to me- me- you know, measure hours in your you know, uh, office. Harder to say, have you created work product that moves the business forward? But that to mm-hmm. me is the opportunity. Yeah. Solving for that of like what actually drives a business forward is going to be the great opportunity. 
No, I also think that a tremendous gift of this moment is the humanity that we are breaking that concept of the ideal worker, which I have to admit, I was also falling trapped to. We love the ideal worker. We love the person who is unencumbered by, you know, outside things, personal things in their life where they can just be so dedicated to the organization. You know, you need them to fly to a client tomorrow morning. Yep. They can be there. You need them to work late tonight on a pitch. Yep. Got it. I, you know, I don't have an external life that you know of that's interfering in this. And we all had fallen trapped to that. And this has also broken that wide open to see all of our employees as people who have lives and other things. And we cannot, they don't want to be the ideal worker anymore, to your point. And we don't want to. Now that we've seen it, we can't unsee it, right? But let's push even further. I told myself that to be a successful female CEO in tech, I needed to be out and about. I needed to go all the things. I needed to lady up the room. I, I, I had to. I had. I couldn't say no. I had to be there in air quotes. Uh, and I am now having dinner with my family seven nights a week, and I'm realizing that is a story I told myself that mm-hmm. is not true. It is not necessary to be gone. I mean, I went from maybe two to three nights a week of family dinners to seven nights a week of family dinners. And it's something I'm not going to give up again because it, it's not its not a helpful narrative. Things don't need to be events. I don't need to be gone all the time. I don't need to be getting home at nine or 10 a night uh, every right. night. And so I, I just as someone who's like, I learned a lesson where I bought into something. I told myself a narrative that wasn't true and it cost my family. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that that's a change I, I will be intentionally making is being much more protective of family time and not giving into the trap of the, the narrative of how to have it all. Right. Right. And to your point, more about the productivity than the hours. So high impact, right? There's some things you're going to still go to <laughs> because they're I miss important. people. I like having a drink with like interesting people. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go out sometimes versus never, uh, but it, it really won't be yeah. you know, four nights a week minimum. Yeah. You don't have to be at all of the things, right? All of the things right. are not that important. So um, you have kids in college, approaching college. You got degrees in English and romantic lit. And you're now a leading tech CEO. So as we continue to think about the future, you know, the, the future of the workforce, the future of work, where it's going, how have those served you? Would you major in those things again? You know, if you were entering university in 2021, what advice do you have for, you know, the young people coming up? So I went to Haverford College, uh, a tiny, teeny, tiny grind school uh, in uh, Pennsylvania, And the most important thing I did is take a wide swath of classes. Like I took something in medical anthropology. I took Native American literature. I took a really broad uh, swath of of classes. And and the way I talk about it is I learned how to learn. And the reason why it's important is as a CEO of a tech company, I am constantly over my skis, not knowing how to do something, but I've figured out how to figure it out. So I am not daunted by not knowing. I can turn to the Google. I can study patterns. I went to history in the mm-hmm. <laughs> middle of like the right. COVID. I was like, look at history. Like I've learned, I've learned how to start to make sense of things and, and figure things out because history can be a great predictor of the future. Um, because so much is in fact revolution, you know, evolution versus revolution. If you just look at patterns. Um, So I think having a curious mind and feeding that all throughout your education will make you a better steward for your customers, a better steward for your users, a better steward for your employees. Um, You know, being curious isn't a bad thing. 
I am not a regretful person. I do not live in regret. I do not stew a lot over the past, but I did spend my junior year abroad at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, where I traveled from the highlands of Scotland to Morocco, from Portugal to the Czech Republic, which it was back in the time. And I did learn more than in that year about myself and the world than I learned three years in books at a small liberal arts school in New mm-hmm. England. So I think it's really important to to sort of balance books and a global perspective, meeting people and traveling and things like that. So I, you know, could I have gone to a bigger university? Maybe, but I would just say study broadly, develop and feed a sense of curiosity mm-hmm. and get outside of your own circle as much as possible. Expand your horizons and your notions of like geography and and comfort and culture as much as you can. Because uh, then you'll you'll like learn how to learn, and you'll be able to figure about anything out. Which is jobs jobs that we're going to be doing in twenty years don't exist today. And that adaptive mindset, that adaptive self learner, to me is the single most valuable thing you can learn early in your life. Yeah, yep. And to always be learning and always be curious. I think we just some people lose that along the way, right? We get so focused on expertise, right? Well, I have to be the one that knows everything in the room, and we forget that. Some of the best things you can be is um, not knowing everything in the room and being curious and asking questions. And that's tough when you get higher up, right? Because like, well, no, I'm supposed to be the expert. People, I'm supposed to have an answer. I had a, a CEO once who was just like the worst at this because he always felt compelled to have the answer, even if he didn't. He just could not say, I don't know. Those He, he could not allow those words to come out of his mouth because he was just conditioned to be like, well, I have to have an answer. For better or for worse, I am not plagued by that same problem. I say regularly, there is nothing at Jelly Vision that cannot be improved, so let's get to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have the answers. And in fact, the older and, and, and potentially wiser I get, the more I'm aware of what I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, like, I'm free from that. I, I, don't, I don't have that problem at all, sometimes to my great dismay. So what are you doing to take care of yourself during this pandemic? You know, you're well-being, emotional, mental, physical, whatever it is, what are the couple of things that you're doing now that are really saving you? So I'm trying to expand my horizons, unfortunately, through Clubhouse, where I'm just trying to get immersed in outside stimulus that that isn't what I'm used to. I've gotten into podcasts. And again, it can be anything from business, you know, Scott Galloway, uh, unsolved crime. It's just looking for external stimulus to feed my mind. I am working out religiously. I took my commuting time and turned it into exercise time and I'm running, you know, five, you know, five or so days a week. I spent a lot of time with my dog. Uh, and I, of all things, uh, this year I, I was doing the pandemic, you know, bowl of wine a night. I've cut back on drinking and, and really have restricted and use an app and things like that. So I, I have in fact tried to invest mightily in, in physical and, and mental health. But the most important thing is like, I miss people. I miss, I miss serendipitous encounters with people. And so I've been trying to find mm-hmm. versions of people and various static content that could be consumed, you know, as I'm getting ready for bed, brushing my teeth, things like that uh, in the meantime. So I would say I'm very, very lucky. I don't have young kids crawling on me. So please understand I, mm-hmm. I, I'm in a different place than a lot of my colleagues and a lot of people probably listening to this. It is different to not have littles crawling on you at right. all times. Uh, so I've had the luxury of being able to say, let's get disciplined and actually, you know, try for self-improvement rather than just letting it all go. I spent plenty of time letting it all go, trust me. And now I'm trying to be a little bit more balanced uh, and, and have a little bit more joy even from 
the confinement of my basement, which is where I work and have worked for the last 11 months of the year. So as you look ahead, what are you most hopeful about or curious about, something that you're really going to watch closely? So I, I think, you know, I, I'm excited because I get more and more ambitious uh, for Jelly Vision and I get more and more audacious with my goals the older I get, where I don't want Jelly Vision to be a nice company. I want it to be a transformational company. Mm-hmm. And I think we're sitting at a, a very interesting precipice. You know, five, 10 years ago, it used to be kind of progressive to say every company is a tech company because of mm-hmm. computing power and, and automation and machine learning all those kinds of things. And now I think the reality is, especially if you're talking about large employers, every company is a healthcare company. And it's not just Mm -hmm. because of the pandemic where suddenly you're thinking about vaccinations and quarantining and sanitation stations. I mean, because average large employers are offering between 200 to 400 point solutions that help employees manage the cost or improve the quality of care. And I think about like the problem with the, the, the good thing is personalized benefits are here. The bad thing is it's very hard to find the benefits you need because you don't care until you care. And I think Jelly Vision is sitting at the forefront of a $1.3 trillion problem. And I think we can be helpful. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited about the future of work to help us with new tools and technologies to redefine productivity and get yeah. really progressive about how and when and where work happens. And and a total non sequitur, just one of the things I've been watching, because I've been spending more time than I would care to admit on TikTok. Like TikTok is my quarantine joy. I love it. It's all about like dogs getting rescued. And now I'm into like book TikTok. I mean, it's just, it's such a joyful place. Mm -hmm. I'm obsessed with the trend of the democratization of fame. I am real. This creator economy, the idea of like anybody with a sense of humor can start to get recognition and monetization for it, I think is going to it's going to kill this ivory tower that that has been around, you know, traditional modes of distribution of content. And I think if I were a TV network, I would just like lay down and and (laughs) I can't I can't fight anymore. Like everything is coming against me. But I uh, I am excited for for the the democratization of 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 content, of creation, uh, where anyone can maybe make a little bit of money doing it. Uh, those are, those are some of the things I think about. And, you know, we're, we're going to come out of this better. The last sort of bucket of like, what do I think is interesting and important for people to understand? When you look at the data that the CDC has published, black people are 3.6 times more likely to die from COVID than white people. Mm-hmm. And Latinx are 2.5 times more likely to die from COVID than white people. We call it social determinants in health. And as we switch from regularly going to the doctor to telemedicine, those same concerning statistics are alive in the new ways we're seeking health. But employers are also, because of the murder of George Floyd and many other Black people in the Black Lives Matter movement, increasingly understanding that DE&I is their responsibility. Mm-hmm. So as they are increasingly sponsoring healthcare and increasingly thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think we may actually begin to have strategies and policies that pay down this inequity in healthcare. And wouldn't that be great for everybody? So those are the kinds of things I think about while on Clubhouse and TikTok and things like that. I am just curious. Do you think though that 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 solution, which I agree, but is that solution in employer-based health plans versus a national healthcare? 
I, I will tell you from, from studying this, I think that a national health plan right now is an ideal, mm-hmm. not an idea, until we take massive cost out of the system. Yeah, I, it is political, but I'll just tell you, um, Vermont approved federalized health care. They can't afford it. Mm-hmm. A bill went up in front of New York. The bill for health care for all was as expensive as the entire existing New York state budget to begin with. If having a 60% tax rate, a 70% tax rate were an electable position, mm-hmm. yes, it's an option. But until then, it's an ideal, not an idea, until we really radically reduce the systemic inefficiencies, the middle payer yeah. model, all the things that are that are making healthcare too expensive right now. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for being with us today. This is so great. I'm so glad I've gotten to know you over the last couple of years. Um, it is really a great. pleasure always to chat with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for all of your leadership, everything you're doing for Chicago and women and all underrepresented groups and tech and everything. And I'm so excited to see where Jelly Vision is going. For those of you who haven't, we I signed up through Alex for our own healthcare plan. We have it. It's fantastic. I think there's so much that you're going to do to really transform all of this. I'm going to be following you, watching you very closely. Well, thank you, Margaret. That's definitely the plan. And we will see each other in person and share an intentional glass of wine one day soon. I hope. Super intentional glass of wine. Super I look intentional. To. It'll be on a Friday or a Saturday. We will figure it out. <laughs> Thanks, Amanda. Thank you so much. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Sure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Sure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Sure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.